So today is the last day of our journey um, with sermons, with uh, journeying through the Torah. Back in September, we started this journey reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In a few days, we're going to close the books of Numbers and start off in Deuteronomy. And if you haven't kept up with this, uh, on November 30th, you have the opportunity to dive in and read Deuteronomy with us. Um, See me after church. I will get you one of these cards uh, so that you can read along. We do about two chapters a day. And it's been a fun journey. I love reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because it helps me to realize that God's people are, to use a better, to use the word that describes them most, they're idiots at times, and to know that God is faithful and gracious even though they do not do well. Um, And as we've journeyed, as we've read, uh, we've seen these moments along the way where they've made mistakes. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when I preached. Uh, We were talking about how God has to make a way to deal with the, the sin of his people so that he can stay in their presence. And I showed you this guy. I call him Mr. Blue. Uh, He uh, got into some hair dye and it went bad for him. Um, I have a few more videos that I would like to share that take this to the next level. Here's one of them. Wait, let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. It's not washing off. It's coming off. It's coming off slowly. It's not washing. It's not washing off. That is a bad Halloween costume that goes on for you. I, I just wonder, did they make it to Thanksgiving and they still had a little bit of orange on their face? Uh, note to self, never mess with hair dye or any type of skin dye, whatever. This one, is, this one is probably my favorite because it is the innocence of a child wanting something that he thinks is good and it goes very, very, very badly. The child will not stop insisting on tasting this keep telling him it's going to be gross, but he does not want to listen. So I'm going to let him find out for himself. You know, when, when you knew not to touch it, but you did, and then you couldn't stop messing with it, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. If that isn't Israel, I don't know what is. God brings them out of slavery and takes them into the wilderness so that he can be their God, and they're constantly wanting to do the opposite of what he tells them to do. Um, we've, we've been on this journey and we've talked about things like the golden calf where Moses is up on the mountain getting all of the Ten Commandments and the things for the temple and Israel gets impatient and they say, hey Aaron, here's all of our jewelry, make us a new God because this Moses guy, he's lost on the mountain, this God Yahweh, he's forgotten us, we need a new God and they create a golden calf, and that causes some trouble for them. 
Uh, They get tired of eating the manna, the food that God is providing them in the wilderness. And they complain to Moses about it. They whine and complain about not having meat. And God sends them quail and then gets frustrated with them and makes them sick. Because they eat it and they eat it and they eat it and they gorge. Um, They constantly question God's leadership. Questioning Moses, questioning Aaron. Even Aaron gets in on the party and questioning Moses. And it's just, they fail time and time again. And God is faithful. God disciplines them, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Sometimes he punishes them, but he never leaves their side. Because he has a plan for them. They are part of this covenant that he made with Abraham, that they're going to be a great people, that they're going to be a great nation and have a great land, that they're going to be blessed, and they're going to be a part of the blessing that God brings to his creation. And the story that we're going to talk about today is no different. Uh, Israel has just come to Mount Hor. Uh, We're in... uh, Numbers 21, so if you have your Bibles and you want to read there, I'll have scriptures on the, on the screen. Uh, here's a map of where they are right now. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. A few chapters later in Numbers, uh, the writer accounts from the time they started coming out of Egypt until the time that Aaron dies. And just before this story that we encounter, God told Moses, hey Moses, bring Aaron up onto the mountain it is time for him to pass away because of the sin that we talked about last week when Aaron and Moses took responsibility for bringing the water out of the rock when Israel yet again was complaining about not having something that they had in Egypt. And so they're up on Mount Hor. Aaron passes away, passes his leadership to his son. And Israel starts out on their final trek to the promised land. It's been about 40 years or so. And so you'd think that they would have been in the habit and gotten the hang of it at this point. But here's where we start in the story. Verse 4 of chapter 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom because Edom said, no, you can't go through our land. So they had to take a detour. meant longer wandering. They're used to wandering. It shouldn't be a big deal to them. But the people grew impatient on the way. They've been wandering for 40 years. You would think they would be over their impatience. But they spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Uh, Just to stop and to talk about a couple things here. They spoke against God and against Moses. This is the first time that they really speak out against God. It's taken them 40 years to get to this point, but they speak out to God. He's listed first here, and it's the general name for God, not his specific name, which makes their anger even worse in scholars' eyes. And the fact that they detest the quote, miserable food that God has provided them day after day after day for 40 years. They simply have not 
gotten it. Uh, And even though they are right on the cusp of going into the promised land, they are still a people that struggles to follow God's lead. And God gets frustrated. There are times that we've read in previous stories where God gets frustrated and he wants to step in and kill them and start with Moses and Moses talks him out of it. There are times when Moses yells at God, why have you sent me out with this people? And God talks Moses out of fleeing from them. And this is yet another story in the cycle of their struggles. So verse 6, they've spoken out against God. They've complained about the manna that he's provided. And so it says in verse 6, Then the Lord, Lord there referencing his specific name, Yahweh, sent venomous snakes or fiery serpents, some translations say, among them. And they bit the people, and many Israelites died. That's a bad day, if you ask me. Maybe Uncle, Uncle Bill or whoever complained about God, and so snake came out of his tent and bit him. And It's just, God is finally to the point where he is reaching out retribution against them. And we need to stop and look at that word, fiery serpents. The word there is seraph, which is also used in Isaiah 6, where Moses, where Moses, where um, Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees God's glory in the temple and he sees these seraphim, these beings with six wings, two that cover their face, two that cover their feet, two where they fly and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so it's intriguing to me that those angelic beings, God's creatures that are doing his bidding and proclaiming who God is, it's the same word that's used here in this story for these fiery serpents. Instead of proclaiming God's glory around his throne, they're proclaiming God's glory by biting the Israelites to show them that they've gone too far yet again in chastising God. And that's the only time seraphim is used in this story. Everything else is just snakes. So it's just it's one of those things that as I read, there are these little flags that pop up that I want to know more and the scholars don't say more. And so God and I are going to have lots of conversations when I get to heaven. So I can go, okay. Are, are they fiery serpents in Isaiah flying around crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Because if that is, that's in very cool and just wow. But needless to say, God sends these fiery serpents and they're biting the Israelites, causing some of them to die. And Israel realizes their sin. So in verse 7, the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned when we spoke against the Lord, his his personal name, Yahweh there, and against you, in parentheses, as you've done a bazillion times before, pray to the Lord that he will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I don't know about you, but in my life, I want a Moses. I want somebody who's always going to be there to stick up for me and to call me out 
in my sin and to be the mediator for me because Israel would be totally lost if God hadn't put Moses to lead them. Moses hears their lament, their sorrow, and he prays to God. And then the Lord responds, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, not the word seraphim, fiery serpent, and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Now scholars think the word bronze there possibly has a reference because bronze has a reddish hue that maybe there's some symbolism there of the blood back earlier in Leviticus that there's always the need for blood to be shed to deal with their impurity. Um, Some scholars also think that it's bronze. It's not a very, I mean, it's a precious metal, but it's not as precious as silver or gold. Bronze was what was used to make all of the tent poles for the tabernacle. So it's, it's more of a utilitarian metal rather than gold, which is precious and shows godliness and why God's tabernacle is overlaid in gold. So the hope here is that maybe it's not something that they will eventually worship, which they do in, in Kings, but uh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves there. So, God, so Moses does what God says. He makes this bronze serpent and he puts it on a pole. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Here's a picture of that. Has a Charlton Heston-esque Moses there. The staff makes fun of me because I reference the Ten Commandments all the time. For Christmas this year, they bought me a Ten Commandments movie poster that's hanging in my office now. Um, They will pay for that one day. But he puts it on a pole, and the people go and look at it. And we've seen this symbol. Some of you that are wearing meta bracelets or some of you that work in the nursing profession or ambulance profession, the snake on a stick is in our culture today. This symbolism carries forward. It's also intriguing, and I wonder if this is what God is doing. If we think about it, where do we interact with serpents in our story? In Genesis 3, When Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's the serpent that has tricked them to say, no, you won't die, you will be like God. And so I wonder if God's used the symbol of a snake to help them to remember their past mistakes. Sort of like rubbing a dog's nose in the mess that it's made so it knows not to do it again. Or in Egypt, maybe they, God wants them to remember back to Egypt because snakes in Egypt symbolize power and protection. That's why every pharaoh, when they had a headdress, it had a, it had a cobra in the front of it. The cobra was there to protect them as they led and was also there when they passed away to lead them across the river to the next life. So I just wonder, again, just like earlier, I wonder if this is a symbol for God just to catch their attention to think, okay, You want to go back to Egypt? Here's what Egypt was like when you were ruled and punished by the Pharaoh. And here's what it's like when the serpent tricked 
Adam and Eve, and you were thrown out of the garden where you had everything you wanted. Because it's not about the golden serpent itself saving them, but it's about what God tells them to do. If we look at the next verse 14. So just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, whoops, I did that first service too. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anybody looked at it, they lived. It's not the snake or the pole that has the healing power. It's the fact that God told them to look at it. And when they go and look, it's by God's power that the snakes go away. It's an extra step of them acknowledging their sinfulness and God helping them to realize that they need to do something more. Um, And that's what we see modeled a little bit later in the story of Nicodemus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus comes on the scene as this light that has moved into the neighborhood and the Pharisees right out of the get-go, are intrigued by Jesus because of the power that he has. Um, And so Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night or late at night, so he's not seen, to ask Jesus about this rebirth that he's talked about, to talk about this kingdom of God. And Jesus, where does your power come from? Because for the Pharisees, somebody who claims to have God power is not good for them. One, they have to give up their power that they would have in their relationship with Rome, but it's also a threat that it's a false messiah. So Nicodemus comes and asks Jesus about some things, and in their conversation, Jesus says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So Jesus is lifted up just like the snake. God's grace and love is there for everybody, which we'll read here in a minute when we read John 3.16. But it's the fact that we have to, we have to take hold of the gift, acknowledge who Jesus is, and move forward in what God calls us to be once we grasp hold of Jesus. Um, The bronze serpent wasn't anything special, but Jesus is. Jesus is exalted as he's lifted up. He's exalted as he raises from the dead. If we continue on and we read in that, in that chapter, verse 16, which everybody knows, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verse 19, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, 
But the people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that they that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. If we look to Jesus, we realize that he died for us, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And that in the end, he raises and goes to sit at the right hand of the Father again in, the, in, the, in Acts 1 and 2, somewhere in there. So that this, this Jesus that God sent to save the world is exalted on the tree. He's exalted as he's raised from the dead. And he's exalted as he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. And the responsibility is for us to live his life. Because with the, with the Pharisees, or sorry, with the Israelites, it wasn't just about getting them to not complain about the manna or not having water or not having meat. It was getting them to realize that they are part of his blessing that he is carrying out to the world. And that they are the people that are his special possession, his royal priesthood. And he's putting them in a few chapters later into the promised land. We are a part of that royal priesthood and that holy nation. And God gives us the opportunity, if we look to the Son, to live and be his presence here and now. But the challenge is our mistakes. Because I don't know about you, but I know I have mistakes that, you know, they sort of drag behind me, sort of in a bag that I don't want anybody to know, or a few people know, because you got to have a Moses that you're honest to. But they're still there, and they slow me down. Uh, just like, the snakes slowed down the Israelites. And God wants us to deal with our mistakes so that we can live for him. And so I wrote this statement. We need to let go of our mistakes so that we can live in the light and be his people. Now, maybe you have no idea of who this Jesus guy is, and that's okay we would love to help you to learn about Jesus. Um, because he died on a cross for your sins to make your mistakes not your mistakes anymore. And if you allow yourself to grasp hold of that grace, your life will be lived out much differently. Uh, maybe you know who Jesus is, but you've not done a great job of following and you've complained about the manna or not having water or insert whatever you've done to get yourself into trouble. Uh, just as Jesus said to many people, your sins are forgiven before he healed them, God wants to forgive you so that you can live in the light. And if that's where you are, uh, we want to talk. We want to help you through that. Because it's all about the living. Israel is God's people going to the promised land to show that God is faithful 
to bring them out of Egypt, to show that he is good. And as we live and follow Jesus, we do the same thing. If you think of Peter, Peter's one of the people that followed Jesus. He was a disciple, and when Jesus was uh, getting ready to go to the cross, he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's sort of the mouthy, outspoken, no, no, I'm not Jesus. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fight. I'm going to be right there. And before uh, morning came, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And it's intriguing that in the Gospel of John, it ends with Jesus having a meal with his disciples uh, on the beach. And he asks Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Sort of helping Peter to realize his failures were smaller than what God wanted him to do. So hopefully today as we celebrate communion and as we respond to what God has challenged us with, maybe you can let go of some things so that you can live the light more. Uh, We're going to sing a couple songs. There's communion around the room. Uh, As you eat the bread and the juice, think of the sacrifice that God did to save the world and to save you. And what is God calling you to let go of? How is he calling you to deal with your mistakes? If you need to take a moment on the steps and pray, uh, we have leaders here who would be more than happy to come up and pray with you. If that's too much, and you want to talk to us later this week, catch me in the foyer after church. Um, Deal with your mistakes so that you can live the light. Because when we live the light, we help the world to know that God is good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you were with the Israelites as they wandered and wandered and complained and wandered. May we learn from their examples so that we maybe can do better. So that you can live through us as we exalt your son, as we grasp onto the grace that he brings us through the cross. So that we can be the people of light here and now, showing the world that you reign. That we can be people who seek you and study your word and serve the world. So that others can know that you are a good and faithful God. As we respond now, I challenge you to move your spirit around us. Call us from our mistakes so that we can be people of the light. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Come and enjoy the bread and the juice, the body and blood of Jesus.